0: just a short announcement with a couple of corrections before we begin. I mistakenly said Charlotte, South Carolina, when of course it is in North Carolina. I actually have family in North Carolina, so I knew that. But sometimes when you're narrating 8 or 10,000 words, you make a flub. But I apologize to all you Carolinians. Also, if you're in that area, know that I'm thinking of you all this week as you're dealing with Hurricane Florence and hoping that you, your loved ones, and your pets are all staying safe. Now, let's start the show.
1: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Fast Food Felonies where I detail crimes that are connected to fast food restaurants. Last time, the connection was that the killer, who'd worked at a Taco Bell restaurant, targeted customers and coworkers as his victims. This time, I'll tell you the story of another serial killer who targeted fast food locations around Nashville, Tennessee. The city was terrorized in 1997, as this unknown killer robbed and killed teens and young adults at their place of employment and seemingly at random. He was finally caught when he attempted his most brazen crime, kidnapping his own boss. This is chapter two, the case of the fast food killer, Paul Dennis Reed. On June 12th, 1997, Mitch Roberts was relaxing at his home located outside of Nashville, Tennessee with his family when there was a knock at his door. Roberts managed a Shoney's restaurant in Nashville, and as he opened the door, he saw one of his former employees, 39-year-old Paul Reed. Roberts wondered what Reed could want. He had fired him the previous February, when Reed had become angry at work and hurled a heavy dish across the kitchen, where it struck another employee. He'd always thought Reed was a bit, well, odd. He was friendly and clean-cut, But there was just something about him. It was like he was trying too hard to be liked, but it was all superficial. There was no depth there, and you never really felt you knew the guy. Truth be told, he kind of creeped people out. Now Mitch Roberts stood at the door, listening to Paul Reed say he'd really appreciate it if he'd give him another chance, and that he'd really like to get his job back. Reed was rambling in his speech, using too many words and jumping around from subject to subject. He also didn't let Roberts get a word in edgewise. After a couple of minutes, Roberts' wife came to the door to tell her husband that the guy at the door was making her nervous. She didn't know if he was on something or just weird, but she told her husband to get rid of him. Roberts was a great boss in that he always tried to help his employees out. Most were young and perhaps needing a little more support before they became great employees. Roberts was always willing to talk to them and mentor them a bit. He told his wife not to worry. He'd lead Reed away from the house, talk to him for a minute, and send him on his way. Roberts walked Reed out to the driveway, while Reed continued to try to make his case for his boss to rehire him. Though Roberts understood Reed's plight, he told him it wasn't possible and that he would not be able to hire him back. He wished him well, but told him that their business was done. Then Reed tried another tactic. He told Roberts that he had proof his employees were stealing from him, and if he'd come over to the trunk of his car, Reed would show him. Roberts felt like this was the last-ditch effort of a desperate man, but he decided he'd humor him. As he walked to the back of the car, Reed pulled a gun on him. Roberts was surprised, but he wasn't really scared. Really, he was just more annoyed. Then Reed pulled out a set of handcuffs and told Robert to put them on. Roberts, angry now, told Reed to go home and simply walked away from him and back to his front door. The fact that Reed hadn't tried to shoot him yet gave him hope that he was bluffing. He walked calmly towards the door and glanced back to see Reed following him, but now he had the gun in one hand and a knife in the other. As Roberts reached his door, Reed came close and pointed the gun. Roberts told Reed to put the weapon away. Reed was still talking, demanding, threatening. As Roberts turned away to enter his front door, Reed stuck the gun in his side. Suddenly, Roberts turned back and struck the gunman in the chest, knocking him off balance. He then ran inside. Reed reached for the doorknob, trying to force it open. Roberts, using all his strength, held onto the doorknob from the inside, trying to keep it closed. He called to his wife to hand him his gun, telling her it was right there in the living room. His wife was confused but said nothing. In reality, this was a bluff. Roberts had no gun, but he thought that if Reed believed he did, he might leave. His bluff worked. Reed took off, racing away in his small red car. Roberts called the police. Deputies arrived after a few minutes and began taking a report of the incident. While they were still talking to him, Roberts received a call from his would-be kidnapper. Incredibly, Reed wanted to patch things up with his boss, who less than an hour earlier he'd tried to kidnap at gunpoint. The police told Roberts to play along and tried to talk him into coming back to the house. To their surprise, Reed agreed. The deputy staked out the house, and when Reed returned, he was arrested for attempted kidnapping and brandishing a weapon. Once in custody, Nashville police ran a routine records check on Paul Dennis Reed. It came back showing a conviction in Texas for a string of armed robberies in Houston. Detectives noticed that the robberies were committed at fast food restaurants. He had served seven years of a 20-year sentence in Texas before being paroled in 1990. They then began to wonder if Reed could, in fact, be responsible for a series of deadly fast food robberies in their own town, They needed to find out more about their suspect. Paul Dennis Reed Jr. was born in November 1957 in Fort Worth, Texas. He was the youngest of three and had two older sisters. His father and mother divorced when he was three, but even before then, his father was away from home frequently on business trips and when he was home, he drank. Reed's paternal grandmother was his primary caretaker from the time he was a young boy. Reed's grandmother reported that she'd had an impossible time controlling Paul Jr., and as he'd grown older, it had only gotten worse. He refused to follow rules and had run wild. He abused his grandmother, sisters, and mother. He put tax in his grandmother's food, locked her in her room, and once set her bed on fire while she was asleep. He stole mail from the neighbors' mailboxes and clothes off their clotheslines. He beat the family dog to death with a baseball bat. By the time he was eight years old, his parents considered him out of control and sent him away to a boys' school. His mother remarried and had two more daughters, and eventually decided that her son should come home. She brought him home to live with her and her new husband, She also changed Paul's name to Leon Morez, not only because Morez was her new married name, but also because Paul had been named after his father and she didn't want her ex's name mentioned in her home. When Reed was 13 years old, his mother divorced her second husband after she discovered he'd been sexually abusing her oldest daughter. Meanwhile, Paul continued to be a problem. He had a short temper and was violent towards his mother and sisters. At the age of 16, his mother kicked him out of her house after he attempted to sexually assault both her and his sister. He moved in with his father, but tried to sexually assault another sister and was then kicked out again. He'd already left school, which he'd only attended sporadically, and embarked upon a life of crime. In 1975, he was arrested twice, first on the charge of passing forged checks, and later on auto theft, for which he received three years probation. In 1984, he married, but was divorced the same year. Before the wedding, his sisters warned his fiancée not to marry him, telling her that he was violent and dangerous. One of his sisters said that Paul had threatened to kill her, and she believed he would do it. He had continued to act out violently against his partners, once holding the pillow over a girlfriend's face until she almost passed out and throwing another's cat across the room. Reed committed a series of armed robberies, including four restaurants and a hardware store. He was convicted of one charge of aggravated armed robbery and sentenced to 20 years in prison, but was paroled after only seven years due to prison overcrowding. After his release, He was able to secure a job as a truck driver in Fort Worth, and a year later was involved in a serious auto accident while driving his truck. As a settlement for his injuries, he received $24,000 plus two years' worth of monthly disability payments. He used the money to have several plastic surgery operations. He had skin peels, had his ears pinned back, and received dental work. He also decided that his future was in music, and set out to become a country music star. He took guitar lessons and started dressing in Western-style clothing, including cowboy hats and boots. He picked the stage name, Justin Parks, and recorded a demo. He just knew he was going to be the next Garth Brooks. Unfortunately, Justin Parks, a.k.a. Paul Dennis Reed, couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I'd play a clip from his demo tape, but I respect my listeners too much to assault their ears in that way. Even so, he was so sure of his musical success that in September 1995, Paul Reed moved to the country music capital of the world, Nashville, Tennessee, to pursue his musical career. He didn't have any luck getting a record deal and soon ran out of money. Within a month, he was forced to take a job as a restaurant cook. He was hired at Shoney's Restaurant as a short-order cook where he worked for Mitch Roberts. Roberts described Reed as polite and a hard worker. He came to work on time and would stay late if needed. He did exhibit a bit of a temper, but it had never been an issue until the day in February where his outburst caused harm to his co-worker. At that point, Roberts said he had no choice but to fire him. But a co-worker of Reed's at the restaurant would report that while Reed was still employed at Shoney's, he often talked about holding up restaurants for quick cash. The coworker thought he was just kidding around until Reed asked him if he knew where he could buy a gun, specifically one that couldn't be traced back to him. At that point, he told Reed he had no idea and kept his distance from him. Apparently, Reed must have found someone to sell him a gun because he'd showed up with one at Mitch Roberts' house. The first in the string of robberies at Nashville fast-food restaurants took place on a Sunday morning, February 16, 1997. An employee of Captain D's, a fast-food seafood restaurant, arrived for his shift just before 10 a.m. and was surprised to find the front door locked. The manager should have already opened the restaurant, but when he peered inside, it was empty. He then called another employee, whose father was a police officer. When the officer arrived, he called an assistant manager, who also had a key to the restaurant. The assistant manager arrived and opened the door around 11 a.m. There was no one in sight as they walked through, but they noticed the cash register drawer had been left open and was empty. They moved through the empty restaurant and finally came to the kitchen cooler. When they opened the door, they found the bodies of 25-year-old manager Steve Hampton, and 16-year-old employee Sarah Jackson. Both were lying face down in a pool of blood. The girl had been shot four times in the head and once in the back. The manager had been shot twice in the back of the head and once in his back. It was determined that they had been lying prone on the floor when they were shot, execution style. They also discovered that the tapes from the restaurant's surveillance camera had been taken homicide detectives categorized the attack on the employees as overkill. This was no typical restaurant robbery or even one gone wrong. They wondered if there was a personal motive behind the killings, but upon investigating the victims, they could find no indication that either of them had any enemies. Steve Hampton was a married father of three young children. He had been employed at Captain D's since he was 15 and had worked his way up to a management position. Sarah Jackson was a high school student who received good grades and was active in many school activities. At first, her parents had opposed the idea of her getting a part-time job because she was already so busy with school. But she wore them down because, like every 16-year-old, she wanted a car. So they finally permitted her to take the job at Captain D's. In fact, she had just purchased a car with her parents' help just two weeks earlier. Other Captain D's employees who had worked the night before the murders recalled a man arriving just before closing. He'd asked the shift manager for an application and had been given one, but was told to fill it out and return it in the morning when the restaurant manager, Steve Hampton, would be working. The man was described as a tall Caucasian man, 20 to 30 years old, with a muscular build and dark hair. In total, a little over $7,500 in small bills and about $200 in change, was taken from the restaurant safe and cash register. Steve Hampton's wallet was also missing, and his wife reported that he'd had $600 cash inside that was their rent money. Just over five weeks later, while the city was still grieving the loss of the two young people found so viciously murdered at Captain D's, an even more brutal crime was committed. On March 23, 1997, a 911 call came in from a McDonald's restaurant located just two miles away from Captain D's. A man could just barely be heard pleading for help. The caller was a 30-year-old employee named Jose Gonzalez. He could hardly speak, but it was enough to get emergency personnel to the restaurant. When they arrived, they found three employees dead in the kitchen cooler and Gonzalez clinging to life. Among the dead were 17-year-old Andrea Brown, 23-year-old Robert Sewell, and 27-year-old restaurant manager Ronald Santiago. Just before 11 p.m. closing time at the restaurant, a man entered the McDonald's and at gunpoint ordered Santiago to open the safe. He then herded all four employees into the cooler. He had them lie down on their stomachs, and then, one by one, he shot three of the employees twice in the back of the head. He then got ready to shoot Gonzalez but had run out of bullets. When the gun didn't fire, Gonzales jumped up to fight off the attacker. The gunman then grabbed a knife from the kitchen counter and began grappling with Gonzales, stabbing him in his back and neck. Gonzales decided the only way to survive was to stay down and play dead. The ruse worked, and his attacker left after grabbing the contents of the safe and cash register. Gonzales had been stabbed 17 times but was able to crawl to the phone to make the life-saving 911 call. The other three employees, however, were not so fortunate. All were pronounced dead at the scene. Andrea Brown was a promising student who attended an academic magnet school. Robert Sewell was just 23 years old and described as a happy-go-lucky guy who loved science fiction. Robert Santiago, the restaurant's manager, was born in Puerto Rico He'd come to Nashville to provide a better life for his wife and infant child, sending money back home when he received each paycheck. Detectives quickly discovered that the crime scene matched the same M.O. as the deadly Captain D.'s robbery. The robber entered when there were just a few employees left inside the restaurant, forced the occupants into the kitchen's cooler, shot them execution style while they were prone on the floor, and absconded with cash and coins. He'd gotten away with about $3,000 from this latest robbery they would also discover that the same caliber weapon was used in both robberies. When news of the second attack reached the public, panic began to ensue. Some fast food employees quit their jobs or stopped coming to work. Restaurants began closing earlier. Parents of teens, who were the majority of fast food employees, would no longer allow them to keep working their after-school jobs, afraid that their place of employment might be attacked next homicide investigators worked around the clock to try and bring the perpetrator to justice. Police patrols were increased around restaurants, and one suburb of Nashville, Mount Juliet, even required fast food workers to place decals on the rear window of their automobiles so police officers could quickly spot any out-of-place cars on late-night patrols. There were some leads in the case as witnesses came forward to describe an individual who might be a suspect. A woman who'd been driving to church on the morning of the Captain D's murders recalled seeing a man, later identified as store manager Steve Hampton, standing inside the doorway of the restaurant at a few minutes before 9 a.m. He was talking to a dark-haired man who the woman described as over six feet tall. Another man came forward who recalled seeing a blue Ford station wagon parked at a funny angle towards the rear of the restaurant on the morning of the murders. He'd remembered it, because of the way it had been parked in the empty parking lot and because the vehicle had front and rear end damage. The sighting had occurred around 8.45 a.m. But the biggest clue came when 11 miles away, Steve Hampton's driver's license and video rental card were found. For you youngins, before video streaming was widely available, people had to go to a physical store to rent DVDs to bring home and watch on a DVD player. For this privilege, you would have to present your membership card at the store. This has been your Ancient History Minute. A man who was picking up cans along the median of Ellington Parkway found the items, and recognizing Hampton's name from the news, contacted the police. A partial fingerprint was found on the movie card, which was run through a fingerprint database, but they didn't get any hits matching it to anyone. When José González recovered enough from his stab wounds, he was able to give a description of the attacker. Unfortunately, it didn't match the description witnesses gave of the person of interest in the Captain D's murders. With five dead and one injured, the case began to go cold. Everyone held their breath, hoping and praying that the fast food killer wouldn't strike in their city again. After two robberies in Nashville, there were five dead fast-food restaurant employees and one seriously injured. Two months had gone by without another attack, but also without any more solid leads. On April 23, Craig Mace arrived at 10 p.m. to pick up his 16-year-old sister Michelle from the Baskin-Robbins ice cream parlor in Clarksville, Tennessee, which is about an hour north of Nashville. Michelle was helping the shift manager, 21-year-old Angie Holmes, to close the store. But when Craig arrived, the restaurant was empty. His sister and Angie were nowhere to be found. He called 911. Police arrived at 1045 and found no signs of a struggle. However, the restaurant safe was discovered open, and both it and the cash registers were empty of money. The public feared the worst, and a wide search was conducted for the two missing women. The next day, a grim discovery was made. Three miles away, at Dunbar Cave State Park, a man reported a body floating face down in the lake. When investigators arrived, they identified the body as Angie Holmes. Her hands were tied behind her back, and she was still wearing her Baskin-Robbins apron. Angie was a nursing student with a 4.0 GPA. She was married and the mother of a young child. She had been stabbed and her throat slashed. The cut to her throat had been so vicious that she was nearly decapitated. In the woods, a hundred feet away, lay the body of Michelle Mace. The high school student who aspired to be a writer and photographer may have tried to flee from her attacker. She may have broken away from him and made it a short distance into the woods before she was overtaken. She had been stabbed multiple times, and her throat had also been cut. Authorities now believe they had a serial killer targeting fast food restaurants in and around the Nashville area. There were now seven dead in ten weeks' time. Police departments launched an all-out effort to catch the killer, including placing officers disguised as fast food workers inside restaurants around the city. But their wait for the next robbery was in vain. Six weeks passed uneventfully. Then, on June 12th, police were called to Mitch Roberts' house, where they apprehended 39-year-old Paul Dennis Reed Jr. After running his record and discovering he was recently paroled from a Texas prison for a series of fast food robberies, they began investigating him as a possible suspect in their three open cases. When Reed was taken into the station and questioned by detectives, the first thing they noticed was that he never stopped talking. It seemed that his primary motivation was to convince the officers that he wasn't a bad guy. When they went over his record and conviction for robbery, he assured them that his past convictions had all been a result of things blown out of proportion, and anyway, he was a changed man now. He told them about his aspiring country music career, and even said that he'd been a pre-law student. In reality, he'd only taken a few remedial courses at a community college. He was booked for the attempted kidnapping charge and was photographed, and his fingerprints were taken. When they ran them against the prints taken from Steve Hampton's video card, they got a match. The employees of Captain D's, who'd reported seeing a man arrive and ask for an application the night before the murders, were shown Reed's mugshot in a photo array. One of them positively identified Reed as the man he'd seen. The woman driving to church had described a tall man with dark hair in the Captain D's doorway talking to Steve Hampton. Reed had dark hair and stood six foot three inches tall. Reed had also owned a light blue 1988 Ford Escort station wagon at the time of the Captain D's robbery. An insurance company appraisal done on February 3rd documented that the vehicle had front end damage to the left side, just as the witness had described. About $7,500 was stolen from the restaurant. Immediately after the robbery, Paul Reed had put down $2,000 cash on a new car. A few days later, he paid the remaining $3,100 owed on the car, again in cash. It was further discovered that Paul Reed was fired from his job at Shoney's by Mitch Roberts on February fifteenth, one day before the Captain D's robbery. Reed's co-workers at Shoney's reported that he'd often complained about not making enough money, and had even commented that he'd make more money committing a robbery. Another acquaintance told police that when he'd run into Reed after February, he seemed to have come into a windfall because he was asking his advice about investing in the stock market. With the fingerprint evidence, the eyewitness identification of Reed, as well as the car description matching Reed's car, investigators thought that he looked good for the Captain D's murders. But they still had to determine if he'd been involved in the other two robberies and the five other murders. Reed still adamantly denied that he had anything to do with any of these crimes. Luckily, the evidence continued to implicate Reed as the fast-food killer. Jose Gonzalez, the only survivor of the McDonald's murders, was able to positively identify him as the man who attacked him with a knife and shot his 3 coworkers execution style. Jose's testimony would be crucial in court to put Reed away for this robbery murder. Hundreds of dollars in coins were taken in each of the robberies. At Reed's home, four one-gallon jugs full of coins, worth over $1,000, were found in a closet. The Baskin-Robbins robbery was a far distance away from the other Nashville area crimes. Charges on Reed's gas card put him in the area of Clarksville on the night that Angie Holmes and Michelle Mace were abducted and murdered. One of the last customers to leave the ice cream shop just before closing reported seeing a shiny red car pull into the parking lot as she was on her way out. Reed's new car was a red Ford Escort. Reed was also tied to these murders through forensic evidence, as hair and fiber analysis had determined that the two young women had been inside Reed's car. Finally, a pair of Reed's shoes were found to have traces of blood from both Michelle Mace and Angie Holmes. The city could now rest easy, as it was clear that Nashville's fast-food killer had been caught. Paul Reed's trial didn't begin until April 1999. As with the Taco Bell killer case, the notoriety of the defendant made it necessary to search far and wide for an impartial jury. While the trial was still held in Nashville's court, jurors were brought in from West and East Tennessee and sequestered to make sure the defendant would receive a fair trial. Well, actually, trials. Three separate trials were held, two in Nashville for the Captain D's and McDonald's murders, and one in Clarksville's jurisdiction for the Baskin-Robbins abduction and murders. At his trials, Reed's defense tried to present a case for mental illness. One of Reed's sisters, Linda Martiniano, contacted authorities soon after his arrest. She argued that her brother was not mentally competent to stand trial and outlined a long history of his mental instability. It was revealed that two felony indictments against Reed in Texas in 1978 were dismissed based on a finding of permanent incompetence, after which he was committed to psychiatric care. After a period of commitment, he was found competent to stand trial in 1984, which led to his robbery conviction in that state. But all three juries came back with guilty verdicts, finding Paul Dennis Reed guilty of two counts of first-degree murder in the Captain D's trial, three counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder in the McDonald's trial, and two counts of first-degree murder in the Baskin-Robbins trial, making a total of seven murder convictions. He was also convicted on multiple counts of lesser offenses, including aggravated robbery and aggravated kidnapping. The defense would now present testimony to try to save their client from receiving the death penalty. At his sentencing, Reed's family members testified as to his history of family instability, the divorce of his parents, being bounced between his mother and father and his grandmother's homes, and finally sent away to a boy's home. Evidence of serious head injuries early in Paul Reed's life was also detailed for the court. His first traumatic head injury occurred when he was five years old. He'd also suffered a skull fracture from a minibike accident when he was 13. He'd hit his head on a car windshield during a car crash when he was a teen and as a young adult, had slipped and fell at work, hitting his head on the ground and blacking out. Paul Reed's first trial was the first ever to be televised live in Tennessee. The media reported that a broken brain defense was being used by the defense to try and save the life of the fast food killer the defense argued that because he'd suffered brain damage as a child, a death sentence was an inappropriate punishment for his actions. As you may have heard on this podcast before, in some patients, damage to the front temporal lobe of the brain has been shown to cause a reduction in impulse control and an increase in aggression. MRI and PET scans of Reed's brain showed that he'd suffered damage that had caused shrinkage of his left temporal lobe. The defense's expert, Clinical neuropsychologist Dr. Pamela Mary Obel went on further to say that Reed suffered from a secondary psychotic disorder, a cognitive disorder, and personality changes due to his brain injuries. In her opinion, the injury to the defendant's left temporal lobe caused delusions and other disorders associated with his thinking. Evidence in Reed's behavior that Dr. Obel said pointed to these disorders were his compulsion to talk and write excessively and the inappropriate use of words in his speech. Reed's sister, Jean Kirkpatrick, testified at his sentencing that her brother had begun exhibiting paranoid behavior after his release from prison. Reed believed that he was being monitored by the government. He even wrote to the governor of Texas and the editor of the Washington Post to make these claims. However, Reed was administered a battery of psychological tests, including the MMPI, and a Rorschach personality test, and none revealed evidence of any psychosis. Furthermore, Reed had displayed evidence of malingering in the past. For example, the prosecutor at his trial in Texas testified that during his competency hearing, Reed displayed bizarre behavior, such as shooting pieces of paper in the air with a rubber band, falling over in his chair, and making a paper hat and placing it on his attorney's head during court proceedings. All this was done in the presence of the jury. When he was found guilty and sent to prison, he subsequently wrote a letter to the prosecutor, apologizing for his behavior and admitting that he wasn't crazy. At the same time, he asked the prosecutor for help in getting his sentence reduced. The defense countered the claims that Reed was mentally ill during the commission of his crimes by bringing in their own experts. Dr. Dan Martell, a forensic neuropsychologist, told the court that, in his assessment, Reed did suffer from a mild neurocognitive disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and a delusional disorder, but this did not impair his ability to understand right from wrong at the time of the crimes. He also pointed out that if Reed was truly delusional and believed that the government was constantly surveilling him, then he would not have committed his crimes, as it would stand to reason that he would be caught. Another expert testified that, in her opinion, the type of brain condition Reed suffered from had never been associated with the act of premeditated murder. She pointed out that Reed's ability to plan, execute, and cover up his crimes had not been impaired. On April 20, 1999, Reed received two death sentences for the murders of Steve Hampton and Sarah Jackson. In total, he would receive seven death sentences at the conclusion of all three trials the most ever handed down to one defendant in the state of Tennessee at that time. Death penalty sentences are automatically appealed, but Reed wrote a letter in March of 2003 asking that all further appeals to his death sentence be dropped. An execution date of April 28th was set. On that day... 17 of his victims' immediate family members waited at an undisclosed location to be transported to witness the execution. But just hours before it was to be carried out, Reed changed his mind and resumed his appeals, and the execution was called off. Reed and his family members and anti-death penalty advocates all argued that he should not have been found competent to stand trial due to his mental illness. But in 2006, Tennessee's Supreme Court rejected his appeal. His execution date was then set for January 3rd, 2008, but once again, it was stayed on December 26th, 2007. Later, Reed again asked that all appeals be dropped, but his family and anti-death penalty supporters continued to fight his sentence, claiming he was not mentally competent to make the decision for himself. Then a legal challenge brought by Kentucky anti-death penalty advocates disputed the legality of lethal injection as a form of execution. As a result, all states using that method, including Tennessee, were required to stay all executions until the U.S. Supreme Court made its ruling. In 2008, the Supreme Court upheld the legality of executions by lethal injection, and Tennessee immediately began appealing stays. However, the backlog of cases would draw out Reed's execution date for several years. In September 2013, Paul Dennis Reed was admitted to Nashville General Hospital, suffering from pneumonia. Two weeks later, on October 1st, he was pronounced dead due to complications of pneumonia, heart failure, and respiratory illness. He was 55 years old. Doyle Brown, whose 17-year-old daughter was killed during the McDonald's robbery, simply said, "'Glad he's dead. I wish it had happened through the justice system several years ago,' instead of him just getting sick and dying. But it's done, and I'm good with that. Sarah Jackson's father said, The guy who did it, he's gone, and he's not going to hurt anyone else. This is closure for us. He expressed frustration that Reed never admitted to murdering his 16-year-old. She was a real special person, he told AP reporter Ruth Schreiner. There's no telling what she could be now. She was a great student, a good daughter, and had a great life ahead of her that she never got to experience. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. And that will end the series, Fast Food Felonies. Next month, I'll be back with a whole new series. And if you want to find out before everyone else what the topic will be, become a Patreon supporter. For just $2 a month, you can get sneak peeks, early release episodes, limited edition merchandise, bonus content, and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to sign up. The link is in the show notes. There's also a link in the show notes to RSVP to our West Coast meetup. A podcast listener meetup will be held in San Jose, California on Saturday, October 13th from 7 to 11 p.m. Come out to the V-Bar at the Hotel Valencia at Santana Row. I'll be there and I'm proud now to announce more special guests. Michael from the True Crime Guys will be there to rep their show in their first ever, I believe, NorCal meetup. Also, the one and only Yolanda from the Not Perfect or Functional podcast, also known as My Baby Sister, will also be on hand. And hey, we may even serve pizza with ranch. Just kidding. There may be more guests announced, so check the Facebook page for updates. And as always, until next time, be good to one another.